This week's episode is a little different because it's not an episode from New Faces of Democracy. It's a guest episode from another great podcast called Democracy Works. Democracy Works is dedicated to answering the question, what does it mean to live in a democracy? By examining different aspects of democratic life each week, like voting, criminal justice, or the free press. Produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, Democracy Works showcases some of the finest academic minds studying these issues today. I'm a big fan of this podcast because, like New Faces of Democracy, they're focused on the role each of us can play in building and sustaining a healthy democracy. This episode features a fascinating conversation with Robert Lieberman, professor of political science at Johns Hopkins and co-author of the book, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. I hope you enjoy it. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about the notion of common ground. And joining us for the interview is Will Friedman, who is the president of Public Agenda, a nonpartisan research and public engagement organization. And we're going to focus on their Hidden Common Ground initiative, one of several projects that pushes back against this narrative of Americans as being hopelessly divided. And I think it speaks to some of the differences or perhaps misconceptions about how we understand and think about polarization. And that seems to be maybe a good place to start. What do we know from political science about the different ways to think about or to to frame polarization? So usually, uh, Jenna, when we think about polarization, we're we're usually thinking about, say, elite polarization or the uh, polarization of elected officials. And so the pattern over time that has been uh, well-documented in Congress and increasingly in state legislatures as well is the idea that Democratic elected officials and Republican elected officials are more and more ideologically opposed to one another with fewer people in the middle overlapping between the two. So, I mean, that's one way of thinking about it. I think Mm -hmm. a new kind of area of research is Liliana Mason's work. I think she's at the University of Maryland, and she's thinking through whether the public is really polarized. I really like this work because what she says is, one, we need to keep in mind that partisanship is becoming increasingly central to people's identity. Insofar as polarization among the public, we might think about whether people are socially polarizing, behaviorally polarizing or if their issue attitudes are polarizing. And her work reveals that there's a decent amount of overlap in what Democrats and Republicans think on issues. But if you ask them about Republicans, then we start seeing more anger on both sides. We start seeing more partisan bias, more anger, more activism. So when we think about polarization, we can think about it not necessarily only in terms of policy, but also just the way we behave and think about members of the other group. What's really nice about a lot of uh, Liliana's work is the way that it directs our thinking to how people who call themselves Democrats often think about other Democrats as being on their team and other Republicans as being on an opposing team. And that politics becomes very much about having to beat the other team. So I think this language of teams is really important. Because what this kind of affective polarization work is doing is saying that 
partisanship is becoming more like choosing a team than choosing an investment that we might actually care. We decide on an issue based on what team we are instead of choosing what issue we care about and the side that we want to be on and then choosing the team, which I think that muddies the water and it makes it difficult to recognize that we actually perhaps do care about the same issues and that we do have similar ideas about how to move forward. And so if the masses don't understand, if the public doesn't understand the issues and the complexity around the issues and how it relates to their interest, it's not just because the public doesn't want to educate themselves, but in part because our political representatives are not giving us the information that we would need to make better political decisions. Yeah. But of course, the incentive structure for elected officials is not really to reach out to the average voter or especially the voter on the other side, but rather to be thinking about their own what primary constituencies, the louder voices within their own party coalitions. So it becomes very difficult for them to do. But I think the point that Will Friedman and the others doing this kind of common groundwork is that, you know, they're trying to, through the things that they're doing, get this message out there so that it can maybe go the other way, right? So that voters can voice these types of things to the candidates and the people in office and, you know, maybe try to change that incentive structure for them a little bit or to uh, reverse some of those dynamics you were just talking about, Michael. Yeah, that's well said, Jen. And I think it's important to get that out so that if uh, elected officials would appreciate the issue consensus among Mm -hmm. the public, they would better respond to it. And we could talk about that more maybe on the backside a little bit. But I'm skeptical that just because the public comes together on a certain issue at a certain medium point, that that's where the loudest voices on that issue aren't necessarily are. And if uh, elected officials really see it in their partisan interest to listen to that, then given the way the parties have evolved over the years, there's probably some truth to that because this kind of social divisions that have developed are not necessarily healthy for politics. Right. Yeah, well, let's go to the interview with Will and hear more about some of this work, more about some of these places where there might indeed be some of that common ground. So let's go to my interview with Will Friedman. Will Friedman, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. So before we dive into public agendas, hidden common ground research, I thought we might start by talking about the notion of common ground more broadly. It tends to be one of those things that's thrown around a lot, I think, particularly in political or democracy reform spaces. Can you talk a little bit about how public agenda thinks about common ground or how you see it in the context of this hidden common ground project? The Hidden Common Ground Project came about because of our perception that a narrative has been taking hold, particularly since the 2016 election, that Americans are profoundly, virtually hopelessly divided. And clearly, divisive rhetoric has been on the uptick quite a bit. But the question of whether the American people are profoundly divided, live in profoundly different worlds, are incapable of understanding one another, disagree on virtually every important challenge facing the country. To me, that's a different question than 
is our national political system, our national parties gridlocked and highly polarized. So our sense after 40 years of working to understand the public, understand the public's learning curve on various issues, work with the public to help them develop sounder judgments, all the work that we do at Public Agenda, is that that's an overstated, self-reinforcing, self-defeating narrative. And we set out to test and, in a sense, challenge it through the Hidden Common Ground initiative by focusing and trying to understand the places where Americans agree on issues that tend to be contentious in the political sphere. Right. So this is sometimes framed as, oh, if we could just find common ground or it's sort of framed in a nostalgic kind of way, like we need to go back to some point in history when there was more common ground or more bipartisanship or more working across the aisle, however you want to frame it. Your assertion, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that this common ground is already there and has perhaps always been been there in some context anyway. We just need to do a better job of talking about it and kind of putting it out in the open. I think that's a big part of what we're up to here, that there is a great deal of common ground that exists, but we do not deny that there are important tensions and disagreements. Our contention is that it's going to be easier for the country to deal with their disagreements if we're not constantly being told that we disagree about virtually everything when that's not the case. It's overwhelming to think that way. Yet That's what the sort of media narrative is. That's what political rhetoric suggests. So we want to acknowledge that there is considerable common ground that upon which progress can be built, but there are also important tensions and questions and disagreements that we need to navigate and come to terms with as a people. Can you give us an example of something that is perhaps framed in the media as being a divisive issue, but that your work has shown is perhaps not as much so? So we just finished and put out a piece on economic opportunity inequality, and there was a tremendous amount of common ground in that survey. We have 80% majority of Americans support creating more good jobs by upgrading infrastructure, and that includes 83% of Republicans, 82% of Democrats, 76% of Independents. It's a supermajority across the partisan lines. Similar, very big majorities across those lines for affordable, high-quality childcare available to all children. We now have strong cross-partisan majorities favoring raising the minimum wage. And there are many other instances there where on bread and butter issues around the economy, around making the economy fairer and more productive and opening up economic opportunity, there's a lot of agreement. There's also an interesting piece there in that there is disagreement on the perception of how much racial discrimination affects people's opportunities in America. That's something that Democrats feel strongly about and Republicans feel much less strongly So even though there's that disagreement on whether racial discrimination is a huge hurdle for people of color, everybody, including Republicans, agrees that strong non-discrimination policies in their community will help their community thrive. So there's an example where people disagree sort of on their analysis of the problem, but they happen to agree very strongly on some of the solutions to it. And so, in our view, that is part of the battle of today's world, of today's politics and today's democratic struggle, is to work in that tension between 
the way the system works, the way social media works, which is to exacerbate people's disagreements and try to get clicks because people are outraged and things like that, is to try to sort of neutralize that in various ways and bring out the fact that that's not the whole picture that we actually do agree on many things, that we actually can work together in many ways and build a stronger country and a stronger democracy together. I'm curious, do you see the parties themselves having a role to play here or office holders and candidates within those parties trying to think more about these consensus type of issues versus wedge issues or rhetoric that's going to make people angry at the socialist Democrats or the fascist Trump supporters or whatever it is? The parties and the two-party winner-take-all system tends to exacerbate our divisions. And especially when the political culture becomes such that we permit that the norms are broken down around how much you can weaponize those differences and whether you can outright fabricate stuff or manipulate social media and things like that. But there is room for the parties to do more. And if you want to stand out right now, you would depart from the idea of sort of weaponizing our differences. The first hidden common ground topic that we covered last December, again, in partnership with USA Today and our other partners in the project, was on divisiveness and collaboration in American public life. And overwhelmingly, Americans told us that divisiveness and gridlock are huge problems facing the nation. And most people thought that that divisiveness is driven more from the top down than the bottom up. Earlier this year, I talked with Michael Dimmick from Pew, and we do our own polling here in the McCourtney Institute that both of those things kind of amplify this decreased empathy, the kind of confusion about what people who hold differing political views think and all these things. And I'm just wondering, like, why, if this common ground narrative is as prevalent as it seems to be from your findings, why don't we hear about it in other types of polls and public opinion research that's out there? I mean, I, I think it's a great question and, and a complicated one, and I'm not sure I have all the answers to that, but I think I can talk to some of my observations about it. One is that there are very powerful forces, as I was saying before, that are exacerbating and even weaponizing our differences. If you ask those questions using the political rhetoric of the day, if you connect them to Trump versus Biden, for example, you'll trigger people's political identities and they'll answer based on their political identities. Whereas if you ask them just simply about how do you solve this problem without affiliating the question or its response to one of the teams, one of the political teams that people have been increasingly identifying themselves with, that's when you begin to bring out the fact that there's actually more agreement than meets the eye. And the Hidden Common Ground Initiative is an attempt to elevate the problem-solving approach to things. 
Have you or has Public Agenda or your partners thought at all about how to bring power into this equation about how to make some of these broadly applicable solutions focused policies, these kind of uniting forces about how to make that appealing or incentivize in a way that speaks to the power that is also an inherent part of our politics? Yeah, absolutely. So the hidden common groundwork is about trying to create a healthier political culture where people don't have the misperception that we disagree on everything all the time. We can't possibly understand or work together. There's no such thing as common ground anymore, that kind of a thing, where it's possible to, I mean, where people recognize that there's both agreement and disagreement in the American public, and that it is possible to make some progress based on where we agree, and that it is possible to build and talk to each other in constructive ways, even though that's not what they typically see or are shown. But the other part of the equation is how do you give people a greater sense of voice, a greater sense of influence, a greater, more meaningful ways to contribute to addressing the issues that they care about. And we feel very strongly at Public Agenda and are doing a lot of work that's on a lot of our initiatives that are really concerned with how institutions and leaders engage the public, partner with the public, and how the public can have a greater role and greater influence in the decisions that affect their lives. So for example, another major initiative by Public Agenda is called Community Voices for Health. And that's an initiative in which we're working in six states in partnership with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to help states develop better ways of giving the public in their states a voice ways to weigh in, ways to have influence, and ways to contribute to healthcare policies in their states, with a special emphasis on communities within those states that haven't had a seat at the table that have been relatively marginalized and disenfranchised. So we're interested in system change within democracy, and we help communities and states work for that, that give the public a greater role and a greater voice. So is the thought with these things, if eventually enough people hear these messages and get together and have these conversations or feel like they can express themselves in a more meaningful way, that this will eventually, in our kind of representative system, make its way up to local state national office holders and that it'll lead to policy changes on some of those fronts? Yep. Uh, yes, that's the short answer is yes. Okay. So one, I think maybe critique of a lot of this common ground narrative is that it's just another way to preserve the status quo. And even if we look back in our history, oftentimes the ways that we have overcome our divides has been through the disenfranchisement of some group, whether that's women or people of color or low income people, you know, you can kind of pick the group. But I guess, how do you think about some of those factors as you're doing the work on Hidden Common Ground? So one example might come from the module of work that we did on racism and policing a couple of months ago. In that piece of work, we did find several places where people agree on solutions. They agree that there are issues there. They agree across party lines. 
on several things that might help. But we also uncovered some disagreements about how deep-seated, how systemic the problems are around race and policing in America today. So Democrats, for example, acknowledged or perceived that there are deep-seated issues in the way our institutions and criminal justice institutions work that are systemically problematic from the point of view of racial justice. There are biases and laws and practices and assumptions that are problematic and deep-rooted, as opposed to the idea that there are a few bad apples that need to be dealt with. So Democrats acknowledge or perceive a systemic problem. Republicans tend not to. They tend to see it as more individual issues that need to be dealt with. And as part of the Hidden Common Ground work, we're trying to really elevate those places that there are authentic differences. And this is one of those places. And this is an area where America, which is going to really have to wrestle this question out and reckon with it and come to terms with it in order to get to the best possible and the deepest possible solutions to injustice around criminal justice. So our goal here is to acknowledge that there is common ground in many areas to get the message out that it is possible for Americans to work together, but also to help shine a clearer light on the places where we disagree so that our differences can be navigated and reckoned with and dealt with more productively. So our intent is not to kind of go back to an idealized past but to try to build a future that has a greater understanding and greater justice going forward. And thank you for the work that Public Agenda is doing to highlight some of those opportunities for progress. And it seems do so in a way that is looking forward as opposed to looking back. We will link to the hidden common ground information in the show notes. And well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate all your questions. I think that in this moment where we've basically had an election where we were on pins and needles, we were worried about riots and violence, that I think it's in some way a little bit of a salve to think about where the commonalities lie. I wonder, though if some of the complexity here is getting a little bit undersold. And so what are the roles of institutions, for example, is a question that comes to mind. Michael, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think this actually may help to pull together a little bit what we were talking about at the beginning with the kind of different types of polarization. Let's stick with this at the national level for right now. It's a little Mm -hmm. easier, right? Congress is a very polarized institution along issue lines. There's not a single Republican senator who is more liberal than the most conservative Democratic Mm -hmm. senator, and the same thing on the other way. And so once this kind of issue consensus enters its way into institutions that are highly polarized, then you're going to have problems seeing anything actually happen on them. Yeah, some institutional things that come to my mind are, for example, primaries. 
And primaries, most people don't vote in primaries. The people who do vote in primaries are people who want to be fundraisers, door knockers, callers. And those are the people who really care about certain issues. And they can pull candidates to the political extremes on the left and the right. And perhaps maybe the primaries are not the problem. Perhaps the problem is that more of the public needs to be involved in primaries. Maybe more moderates should make sure that they get a say in the primaries and deciding who the top two candidates are going to be in a situation where we have a two-party system and only one of them needs 50 plus one or so, and sometimes just the plurality. So that's another thing that comes to mind. And so there's not really much competition in the general election, but the competition can be intense in the primary if you have a well-funded challenger and you're dealing with a much more ideologically engaged electorate on these primaries. And so it's going to pull the office holders to the extremes. And even if they don't have the primaries, the threat of the primary mm-hmm. is really sufficient to be able to pull them to the extreme. But there are lots of other institutional mechanisms as well. Yeah. I think the other thing that stood out to me, again, is that I was thinking about, and I think Jenna pointed this out as she was talking, is that to what extent does this lead to more incrementalism or support of the status quo? For example, I think that people are really, I think that people agree that police, for example, should not do chokeholds. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Let's not do that. I think people are okay with body cams. Yeah, we're not trying to surveil everyone, but if it's helpful, let's do it. But these are surface level issues. They're not structural. They're not about, for example, funding. They're not example for about whether police should be accountable when they wrongfully kill or harm somebody personally in the way that you and I would be in our positions as professors. Mm-hmm. So if we agree on the problems that are obvious, I think that's an important step. But what about the nitty gritty structural issues that are more difficult to address? Yeah, this reminds me of the old Lindblom argument about muddling through, that it's within the human capacity to muddle through and to make small changes around the edges. And that maybe that gets you somewhere over time. But the ability to be able to comprehensively take a new look at things is very difficult. And I would think requires a sort of political leadership across both parties, don't Mm -hmm. you think? That doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, in order to see that kind of non-incremental change, wouldn't you need somebody from each party to stand up together to kind of say, hey, let's work on this collectively and see if we can get us to a significantly different place? Yeah, I can see how that can go badly very quickly. And maybe it just depends on which team you're on. But Mm -hmm. I can see how maybe sometimes that's necessary when you need really important changes made. Maybe, Candice, what's instructive as we're kind of thinking through this is as we're looking back on the election results, I'm really struck by some of the ballot initiatives Mm -hmm. that passed. And how some of them, so in Florida, where Donald Trump won after the last debate in which he was vehemently opposed to raising the minimum wage to $15, Mm -hmm. the $15 minimum wage passed by a referendum. Yeah. California, which is a pretty Mm -hmm. liberal state, 
passed what struck me as some pretty conservative uh, measures on the gig economy yeah. through a referendum. Marijuana legalization passed in, I think, four states mm-hmm. through the initiative. We could go through. I, I know there were also a whole bunch of local initiatives concerning the police and district attorneys mm-hmm. and review boards. I have not had a full appraisal yet of which of those passed or which of them didn't. But the interesting thing about these initiatives is that they often seem to tap into what the public wants much more than elected officials do. And I think it's because of everything we've been talking about, about how institutions get in the way. Right. And there's not a D and an R necessarily attached to the ballot. So there's no cue about, oh, is this for my team or not for my team? I think that's really important. And it speaks to the problem of confusing the social polarization and the issue polarization, because the public is, they may be in agreement on these issues. And as you say, when there's no DNR, they can all just come together on whatever public opinion is about the issue. But put the DNR, get it into the institution, and then the social divisions or however you want to call this, the team sport aspect Mm -hmm. of uh, parties comes into play. Maybe what this means as we're talking is that there are institutional mechanisms that maybe need to be changed so that we can get back to perhaps not a Tweedledee, Tweedledum situation, but a place where people can make decisions not based on the DNR, but on the issues and what they think is important and whether the policies align with their interests and their values and their priorities and not simply use this heuristic of the party, which has kind of gone out of control in many ways. And yeah, maybe there is a different way that things can be done. It's just a matter of having the political will to make a transition, a transformation on those points. One way I think, and I and I think a lot of this because you bring it up all the time too, of getting away from some of this is to be focused more locally and at, mm-hmm. the, at the state level. And that's one way of getting away from this national identification of the D's and the R's. Those are also venues where the initiative and the referendum make some sense. Maybe people, if they had more information and we weren't being bombarded by the loudest voices and the most extreme framing of issues, maybe we could meet in the middle. Well, that's a great note to end on, don't you think? Such a hopeful note. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay, well, (laughs) thank you, Will and Jenna, for the interview for Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.